Hey, what's going on? This is Justin from the Survival of the Artist podcast. This is episode four. This is a special one because I'm doing it live in a hotel, face-to-face with a person, which doesn't usually happen. I've never met this person before, but I've known about him for a very long time. We just recorded a verse in his closet. I didn't. I watched. <laughs> his name is KJ52. Oh, you said live in the hotel as opposed to dead in the hotel? Right. We, we are living and breathing here. Yeah. I always, when people say, yeah, we're live, I suppose, I always think the opposite, like in a very, probably twisted, morbid sense. Um, but yeah, I'm glad we both have, you know, we're both alive. It's always on the plus. It makes for better radio. It does. Uh, you want the zombie podcast. It's, the, the, the it's Walking a couple Dead. podcasts down, yeah. Walking Dead podcast. I'm sure it's much... That was a celebration. We have a soundboard. <laughs> I think I think we've made it. <laughs> we, the big budget. You should see the setup here. Hold on, I can switch the sound effects. Okay. This is this is when you crack a dad joke. I haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. I haven't gotten there yet. Ladies and gentlemen, live from the podcast. <laughs> That's my monster truck voice. <laughs> KJ has hijacked the podcast. This is now the KJ podcast featuring Justin. One night only, monster trucks. Because this ten monsters, two trucks. It's because this guy is from Florida. He's in the South. We, we don't do that over here. That's right. You wouldn't do monsters. You guys have never done. It. Yeah, you no. don't even have space to run a monster truck no. down the street. Yeah, we got the monster truck moms driving their Escalades. That's true. We we are in Newark, New Jersey, right now, which is the epitome of pleasant pastures. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, white picket fences. Uh, fried chicken and pizza. Fried chicken and pizza. Apparently, is the national cuisine of Newark. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm sure the fried chicken's delicious. I wouldn't eat the pizza. Yeah. But um, for for the people who don't know, and, and I'm sure most people know, who are you? What do you do? And what is your claim to fame? Uh, I am a uh, Christian hip-hop artist. I've been a Christian hip-hop artist for almost 18 years full-time. I am a teaching pastor back home in Cape Coral, Florida. I am a father of three. I'm a husband of almost 20 years. Uh, let's see. I'm a lover of all things nerdy hip-hop. And uh, I have a special affinity for Cinnamon Toast Crunch, Chick-fil-A, <laughs> and Krispy Kreme. That's very None important. of those are good for me, and so I don't partake very often. But It's very important. We we just got our first Chick-fil-A in right. New York City. I was just reading the New Yorker piece right. about this. I, heard, I overheard you. Yeah. And, and where I live, Chick-fil-A is just... It's a staple. It's, it's gospel. Yeah. Uh, I As a child, I thought it was Chick-fil-A. Right. Of course, you know, I'm a product of the Florida educational system, so <laughs> not much to say about that. But, um, yeah, um, yeah, I, I'm a, a Florida, one of the very, I think there's like three of us in the whole state actually born and raised there. Um, uh, most people just come there or they live there for a year and they claim it. Uh, you're all liars, and you're clogging up our highways. So how dare you? Um, but yeah, other than that, um, I, I love my life, love my job, and and love the God that gives me the opportunity to do that. Hey, there you go. Thank you. That's solid. Sound effects going. <laughs> He's got his sound got effects right. So you you so. <laughs> <laughs> this is totally ill-timed. <laughs> this, this is the worst podcast. <laughs> so. I've spoken to this can, guy can so I many tell you times. Something? Hold on. Can I tell you something? When I'm in staff meetings with my church, 
when it gets really low and boring and if my, my lead pastor says something good, I'm like, this is why it took you so long to get an office. <laughs> so you, you've been around for what, 20 years or so? 20 I mean, I've been, doing, I've been doing Christian hip hop longer than 20 years, but my first national release was in 2000. Um, I had a uh, independent project with another guy in 97. Uh, and then I did my own project as King J Mac back in the day. That was King 94. J Mac. So just really depends where you want to pick up the timeline. But yeah, for all intents and purposes, about 20 years. 20 years. And 97 was what? Sons of Intellect, right? Yes. So I, I'm asking because you, you've sort of been around during different peaks and valleys Absolutely. of yourself and in yes. music. So at the yes. peak of your career, like what was, like how big were you? That's the thing. Like people say this all the time. Like anytime I see a post, they'll be like, oh man, you were the man back in the day. Like I'm like, if I was, apparently I did not get the memo because whatever was happening then, I'm still doing. Right. Um, I, I, the crowd sizes have not really changed per se. If you want it, it depends on how you want to judge it. If you want to judge it by record sales, then yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm a shell of what I used to be. But as far as like opportunities or doors that were open or places to play, so much of that honestly is very perception. Because right. if I can tell you from the guy who's on the other side, there was never really a point where I was like, yeah, I made it. It has never not been an uphill battle. Um, whenever the era that someone would want to say, oh, that's when you were killing it, man. Like, that's when you were doing it. In my opinion, I could tell you a bunch of things behind the scenes that would make me feel I was not right. killing it or doing it. I can say from a career standpoint, there was a turn maybe about two, three years in. But that's really where I just learned how to do it better, and right. I was finally making a profit as opposed to getting my car evicted. I mean, my car repossessed and my house evicted. So if you want to say, when did I make it? I would say maybe two years in, but that just meant that I was able to earn a living well, I, salary. I feel like and I can tell you that salary wasn't great. Anyway. Well, the salary is not, not great for anyone who wants to be creative. Right. Absolutely. Because journalism is about, just about yes. the same. Yes. And for me, someone who always wanted to be a famous rock star one day, oh, what do you want to fall back on? Journalism. Wow, so you just don't want any nice things <laughs> in life. Uh, right. But um, I, I feel like you were part of that influx of Tooth and Nail in the early 2000s, even though technically you weren't on Tooth and Nail, no. but when they were really popping off with all the bands, with you know your, your Project 86s and, your, and, and, and all those people. And you were kind of in that mold because you were on what, BEC? Right? I was on BEC, but can I tell you, I was so far removed from that world. Um, I was still doing basically what I had always been doing. Right. Um, I was not a part of the tooth and nail world. The only th overlaps were maybe from a collaborative standpoint, and that just maybe came because of the nature of being on Well, the you were on all rock songs with, with Trevor and TFK and... Yeah, but, but and, you know what? Pillar and Rob. But and the, you know what the funny thing is about that is that I met TFK when they were still signed to DJ Dove's label. Like in 2000, my first record. I met them at a GMA. Uh, I took one look at them, like these rap rock, rap rock wannabe Canadians. I'd never do a song with them because I didn't like rap rock. I thought it was a delusion, deluding. And then of, he made an album. Exactly right. That's a different podcast. Totally different podcast. But <laughs> I, I, I looked at him and I judged him like I normally did because I was this purist backpacker. It wasn't until I actually listened to Trevor rap in, on his first record that I was like, oh, this guy is a rapper he with could. guitars. Right. That's what won me over. 
So it wasn't like the TFK thing. We actually both got our deals with, with Tooth & Nail at the same time. So it wasn't like then it opened up. It was like those were people that I had already built relationships with. Same thing with Pillar. Like my first tour, we did a show with Pillar in the middle of Kansas somewhere. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it was just happened to be by two, three years in. He wanted me on a song that T-Bone was supposed to be on, T-Bone Flake. And that's how I wound up. The Boney Bone the Corleone. Boney Bone Corleone was. But he got the real Italian though. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess. You know, a lot of those things, anything that ever happened from a collaborative standpoint was generally very organic and very mutual and not forced by any means. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Even the song I did with Emery years later. You did a song. What song did you do with Emery? I did. Um, Emery is on my yearbook album. Uh, oh, they're on your album. They're on my so album. you had Toby. Um, right. Toby sang a hook, wrote a hook, and sang a hook. Uh, but that was a really, again, a weird situation where I had, I think we had both played Spirit West Coast, and they had seen me perform. And everybody at Tooth & Nail was like, yo, Toby really likes you and wants to do a song with you. And I'm like, that's not going to work. I'm not going to. Like me and their styles, right? I'm like, how would this even work? They're like, no, you should. Everybody's like, you should really try it. No, you should try it. You can and really my, sing though, too. Yeah, and my DJ, who was like straight out of 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 uh, 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 Brooklyn, Puerto Rican guy, just straight up like hip hop to the T, was a huge Emery fan. That's strange. Exactly, and and he's like, no, you should really do it. I'm like, what? Even you think I should do it? And again, when I, I you know, that's when I was like, again, I have my own. Con- conditions that i tend to be wrong in so i was like who knows i'll just try it he wrote a great chorus he had a great idea behind it it was a real personal story we never even talked on the phone it was all through instant messenger and the song was like a minor hit you know r.i.p instant message i know right that sounds so sounds so 07 to say that aim <laughs> that's how we all cut our careers that's and true i did a that's, lot that's of how file I dated, that's how i dated all my girlfriends in high school yeah. right through aim right it was the original slipping DMs. Okay, so aside from sliding in people's AIM DMs. Um, <laughs> I guess it all how, was a direct message if you think about it. Yeah. How, I mean, you kind of alluded to how long it took you to get to that point in your career. So how do you keep that momentum going? Because that must be exhausting. And um, I know someone like you, you were putting out an album like every year in the early 2000s. No. Or every no. No, I, I think uh, I probably went, well, they say, they say you have your whole life to make your first album and then you got about a year to make your second. So 7th Ave came out in 2000, but it had actually been started in 98. Okay. So it was one of those deals where they took what I was already doing, just added a few more songs. 2002, I think was collaborations. 2003 was profi- pronounced 5-2. And the reason why they were so close is because collaborations was doing so well the label was like oh we need another album that's really where it comes down to is right. where the label if they see momentum they want another project right away and that um, was my first album of yours it was yeah, collaboration for a lot of people it was and then a lot of people went back and got seventh out right or some people came in and pronounced five two um that actually and every record kind of progressively sold more and became more popular but the, the weird thing was I actually really thrived on making music. Like making music was never a problem because I was always writing down song ideas. I was always around concepts. I would, I loved making music. Like I got such a joy out of being in the studio. So it never was really a problem 
and there would be times where I'm like, ah, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. And then as soon as I'd say that, inspiration would hit or something right. would happen or a concept would happen and then me and Todd would have a nice vibe and then, yeah. Todd, Todd Collins, legend. Yes. Mr. Collins, yep. It's funny, uh, pronounce 5-2, how you, you open it, 5-2, brown air, eyes are blue. Right. Blah, blah, blah. But when I was when I was like starting out rapping, that was always something that I felt like I needed to make an introduction like. <laughs> and I would and I would say like whatever and I'd be like I'd be like almost six foot two right. cl- clocking in, a Puerto Rican Jew, like something like but that. I would, and I would I would hit that was- rhyme scheme together and I always thought I was like, All right, KJ went in with the brown hair, eyes blue and I would go like under six foot two. Thing was I, I was like I lost a bunch of weight like right after that. So I always felt like I was living a lie because I was I, 200 pounds is not healthy for me. Like that's about 10 pounds heavier than I should be. And I actually went to like 210. What are you then, like 6'3"? No, man. I'm not even six foot two. I'm like 6'1", 3 quarters. Okay. So then that's what I am. Yeah. You just give a tall appearance. I, you know, it's my presence. You, you have this, <laughs> this, this aura of it. Plus I wear Air Maxes. Artist. That's a couple inches right there. That probably helps. Yeah. Well, when I got collaborations, I was probably about 5'2". There you go. So yeah, I was people, just always looking up. I, I can never understand people who are always like really disappointed in my height when they met me. I'm like, it's not to scale. Like if you see me on the cover, well, and I was always sitting down. They think that they're always like, oh, you're tall. I, but is six like, foot two really that tall? But who gets disappointed with someone being tall? I feel like you'd get disappointed with someone being short. No, people generally were like, oh, dude, I didn't think you're gonna be this tall. I'm like, what do you want me to do, man? Like come back later when I'm shorter or. Well, it's funny, speaking of Emery, I met, um, you know, the guitar player, Matt? Yeah. I met him, and he's like 6'4". Oh, really? And I was like, jeez. I was like, you're, you're, you're huge. See, I spent most of my life pretty short, right? I was like the, the late bloomer. I was very much a late bloomer, so, but, but my feet grew first. <laughs> so, like, imagine having the same exact, like, <laughs> size 12 foot, but, like, being 5'5", five, 5'6". Five, five, Even when I was playing football, like... I was like maybe five ten, maybe hitting six, but I was so disproportionate that I could, I would make a great catch and then immediately trip. Like I was just, it's really awkward, and it's weird because I'm taller than both my parents. Uh, I think I'm taller than most of, them, definitely taller than my brother. Um, yeah, so me and you actually have like a pretty similar build. Yeah, well, I was. It was really hard. Like it's always been hard for me to. It was hard for me to gain weight. It was hard for me to like build muscle. It was hard for me to just. I always like. I, I look at the old pictures. My arms look like two like praying mantis arms. <laughs> Those <would> be too. <laughs> I'm I'm like I'm like six two one ninety yeah three ninety five. But once I started hitting my late twenties and I was still eating very poorly, all of a sudden my body's like, oh yeah, we're gonna pack this on in all the places you don't want. So it'd be like I start getting the gut. I start getting like the double chin. And the fatness in the face, and the physically bod. getting six. I was getting I, dad. I bod. started getting the dad bod when my wife was pregnant. Absolutely, and I was like oh, I was no, dad no, no. bonded up, and and but I had built a career off of these two dumb songs, dedicated to like poor poor eating choices, <laughs> and they became youth group anthems. Not that I kept by any means going with it. But the point was is that like I just always wrote about anything I was going through, anything that was happening. But I you know knew that if I was going to continue on. Just from a health standpoint, I had to change. Right. You know, I was getting all kinds. Of, and plus, this, the road is not healthy. Like, it's... No. Now, and, and, now and, I feel like you have healthier options nowadays. Absolutely. If you're smarter, absolutely. But I was living a world of youth group pizza, you know, parties and, like, all this just 
you know, when you're 20 something and you're a teenager, you can pretty much eat whatever you want. It doesn't matter. And I was always had a high metabolism. So it, it didn't really make a difference. But again, I just had to, I had to make an honest evaluation of myself. If I want a long career, my physical well being is going to have to really change. So. Right. And now it's funny too, because even last night, like a guy that I've known for years, right around my same age now, he's like, dude, like, you wear me out just watching you. I'm like, <laughs> well, I have to. Like, I'm still competing with people that are half my age, you know? And uh, about, Maybe five to eight years ago, I started literally training for the stage. I, I was like, everything I do will be for the yeah, stage. I benefit. noticed you have like a lot of fitness stuff on your pledges, and yeah, that you thing, had a you had a couple. Maybe yeah, that stuff was more just another option and like another fan experience. Um, it's funny, like me and this guy DJ Aslan, who is also a passer. He's a DJ. Um, he he came to me a couple years ago, like, dude, how do I get my like life on track? And I said, well, I can't tell you everything, but I can tell you what worked for me. And he just started putting those things into to um, into practice. And now he just texts me, he's like, I was at this camp for nine days. I just <laughs> lost two pounds. I can't believe I did it, man. I'm like, good job, bro. Like we're we're, you know. Anyway, point is, is you know, health is wealth, and like, I just, I I, yeah. If you're still able to deal with youth group kids after all these years and put on a show yeah but it's it's not even about youth group kids because that probably still is a, it's a part of my life and it's never been the only thing i did right it's really about just surviving the high level of stuff i have to do you know what i'm saying like when i leave tomorrow i land i'll probably get in at midnight i gotta get up at 6 a.m i'll be back and i gotta do youth service that night and then i'm back on a plane on thursday like that just takes a lot of mental physical toughness yeah so you just have to be in shape everywhere, pretty much. It's about it's about having to be able to be endurance, like, Stand and I don't mean like a cross country endurance, but just mental and mental physical endurance. fortitude to Absolutely. survive. Yeah. All right. So, is it was it hard for you? And I think we we did talk a little bit about this off, but it was it hard to adapt from where you were selling CDs and being that to just totally deal with streaming and just. Take, and just using the industry for what it is now. Well, it, you know, it's weird. About 10 years ago, I used to get a bit frustrated with my audience, like my core buyers, because they were so behind technologically. Right. They were like, they wouldn't do downloads. They would not, they would not update themselves. <laughs> now, they were, now you wish they want CDs. Well, no, that's what I'm <laughs> saying. Well, that's what I'm going to tell you. So this is what's weird. So as the industry changed, and as Christian bookstores disappeared, as brick and mortar changed when I transitioned to fully independent like I am now I still kept selling CDs like my fans because oh, they were still a couple years behind but also they're the same fans that have just followed me as I got older right so that doesn't really they don't really change their their you know format of choice right so what has happened is like when I do my kickstarters my pledge I'll still move a couple hundred CDs just on that order alone. So like if you would have told me I've moved, if you would have told me I'd be able to move 2000 CDs of Jonah, the Jonah album, I say you're insane, but I have. And that's just the first part. Just as the first part. Now, will it be the same this time around? Probably, probably not. Cause again, like anything, everybody eventually has to 
conform to whatever the norm is. But um, was it hard for me? Yes and no. I, it wasn't so much the format as much as the idea of the album. That's probably where I struggled. You know right. what I'm saying? Like, for me to go from 17 songs to 15 songs, to 15 songs to 13, to 13 to 12, to 12 to 10, you, 10 to 8. Yeah, you used to really pack it on. Like that's 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 where I struggled. But then... Now that I know that's the new thing, I absolutely love it. it. Well, what was uh, your album's boy named Jonah, right? Yeah, that was like... That had 23 tracks on it. Well, some of those are skits. Right, right. But it's 23 tracks, and then you had the bonus tracks. Right. It was like 30-something tracks. But part part of that was the industry, too. Like, they demanded that. Like, your fan base was like... You have to come out with an album, everyone buys it, and then say, oh, wait, now I have a deluxe album. Yeah, that was part of just being creative as things began to change. That's probably what that was. But I'm saying, like, fans did not want short albums. Like, right. They wanted now 15 you, songs minimum. No attention span. Whatsoever. Yeah, now it's the opposite. They want really short projects. But Now, now yeah. what I'm seeing, sorry to cut you off. Now what I'm seeing, though, is instead of even short projects, people are doing short songs. Oh, yeah. And I'll get submissions, and it'll be like, the, the track is two minutes. Two or, minutes. And it might be a, a minute and 30. Mostly a chorus. Yeah. And I'm like, how how much short are we going to go? <laughs> we're, we're pretty much going to bring back, like, you're going to have ringtone albums, like, back in the day. You get that 15-second well, loop. I think if I, and again, I'm no prophet, but I think if anything, what you will see is there's always a rubber band effect. So whatever becomes the one side of the rubber band pulling, sooner or later, the tension breaks and the rubber band swings to the other side. So I think... Why would vinyl of all formats be the only format that keeps selling more every year? It's bulky, it's expensive, it costs more, you can't do anything with it. Why is the most non-conducive format continuing to do better? It's because 20-somethings who never experienced it want to collect it. They want to collect it because it's the thing you didn't know. That's the rubber band effect of the 20-year-olds who have grown up in a world that's all digital. And they go, what have I missed? Whereas someone who's 40 who may have grown up with cassettes, vinyl, CDs, digital and cassettes streaming. are coming back a little bit too. They're like, I don't see the big deal of this. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? It has less to do with the format and probably more to do with we always want what we don't have. So hang on to that stockpile of CDs you have because in another 15, 20 years, that might come back. Probably. And you might sell out in 20 years. Probably. It could be my kid, my kid who grows up only knowing streaming. When he hits 25, he may want a CD. He's going to be digging, digging through your CD. Or it could be his kid. You know, who knows? Hey, what is, who's this Vanilla Ice guy to the limit CD? Totally. I mean, there's, there's no way to... <laughs> the only thing we can predict is that things will always go in cycles. Right. And we can always predict that we can never predict anything. But there always tends to be a shift every 20, 20 years. That usually seems to be the norm. You know what I mean? Makes sense. So that's, that is a weird challenge for me because now I have to accommodate so many different fans. Like there still are really, really young fans that just because of the nature of being Christian rap, they love it. Just because I'm affiliated with this guy, this guy, this guy, even though like they're looking up to me, now it's, it's like a reverse endorsement. So for them, I got to think of streaming. For the 20-somethings, I got to think of vinyl. For the 30-somethings, I got to think of CDs. And the 40-somethings, I got to think of something else that just sounds expensive now it is it is expensive but it's actually a lot of fun i'll be honest with you i actually i get i get very excited with doing that stuff like getting creative with my merch it really excites me and now that i'm totally in control 
I'm having a blast. I mean, yeah, like, that's cool. I have so much fun with that. That's why music now is a joy for me again. That's why you keep going. Yeah. People are like, where do you find inspiration? I'm like, because guys that are my age will be like, I, don't, I can't get inspired anymore. I'm like, well, then you obviously are not hanging with the right people because inspiration's everywhere, man. Okay. So I guess since you were part of two different eras of, I would say, the Christian hip-hop world, because you had, true. Yes. I'd say maybe 2000 to 2010 was much different than even the last Absolutely. three or four years. Yes. So what would you say are the major differences, kind of like the before and afters of where you used to be and where you're at now? And not necessarily even like you, just your observations of, you know, the genre and the culture. And um, I think probably around 2010, what you actually saw is that the gatekeepers began to change. Um, I came in where the rock world was the um, gatekeepers. Is the best way I can put it. It was the intro, right? Yeah. The gateway drug. <laughs> well, no, it was just like everyone that was in charge of things that would really make you either make it or not make it were from the rock world. They came up on, you know, the early Jesus movement rock guys. So they were foreign to anything hip hop related. Yeah. Or if they were trying to put it out, they weren't part of the culture. They were doing their best, but they really didn't know how to do it. So we were operating in a world that didn't understand us. They may have wanted a slice of the pie but they did not understand us. So long story short, you know, basically that's why there was so much trial and error and more error. Yeah. <laughs> um, probably what started to happen around 2010, there was just a changing of the guard. So when I say the gatekeepers, I'm talking about the pastors. I'm talking about key leaders in high positions. I'm talking about people at radio. I'm talking about people that are promoters, you know, all the people that really honestly hold the keys. Right. Nowadays they have less keys. But um like I said, that's what started to happen. So we because there was just an age range change, we kind of started to take over. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So that's the main thing was the acceptance level. Like I was having to make a lot of concessions on the front end of my career. I was having to dumb down or whatever you want to call it, sell out, whatever you want to label it. I was having to do that for, for survival. Post 2010, you had to do less and less of that. But really what happened is Christian hip hop became its own separate world. It's like CCM went one way, Christian rap went the other way, and the two things did not diverge. Then CCM goes, we need your help. Can you come back right. and help us? Um, and especially with the with rock too, rock kind of died out. And yeah, so it's it's either your your like a a carry job, yeah, worship CCM or worship worship and hip hop were the only two things were the only two things with any momentum. That's exactly what began to happen. Um, that's the that's the best way you could put it. Uh, and and now to this day, that's all there is. Right. That's the dominant thing. Um. Uh, it's it's what I saw rock was when I came in. Right. Now the now rock's the one who's like, hey, hey, absolutely check, check us out. Absolutely. Like I feel bad for anybody that's a rock band right now. Like, and now now the rock guys are probably going to the hip hop artists to try oh, yeah. to get features for there. If they can the even room. survive. A lot of them are out of the picture. They can't most, just from a financial standpoint. Or or they're just they can't survive because you have three to four people you're trying to make work. Rap by nature is less cost 
yeah, it's less cost to it. So that's therein lies the problem, right? You know, I mean, not only are you less popular, you cost more. Yeah, you're splitting profits with four, five, six guys. Yeah. You have a ton of gear. You need exactly. roadies. You need you need you need stuff. a million things, right? So, and then you're splitting the pie four ways. It's like, dude, you just can't make it, man. So, um, that's a big thing. I that that because of that that's where everything hangs on the amount of acceptance level. There are always going to be artists that defy the acceptance level, but I'm just right. saying the acceptance level was the big problem. You know, that was the big problem. So how different do you think your career would be had you come into it in 2010? Night and day. I mean, I would hope that talent would always rise above. Right. But talent. Well, what do you think you would have done differently? If you were just. If I came in now? If you were just allowed. Say, so what were you when in 2000? You were in your mid-20s, right? So say. So say you're, you were 25, now starting to rap in 2010, coming into Christian hip-hop. What do you think your career path would have been? Well, okay, so it's easy to go. It's easy to be like, yo, it was the, the, the world was so empty when you came in. And <laughs> da, 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 da. It's like, it's, no, it really was still crowded. It's just where, where now people are trying to get a viral hit. Right. Then you were trying to get a record deal. Record deal. Both were probably just as unlikely to happen. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I don't know if the odds were any different then that they are now. The purposes might have been different. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe if I had the same hustle and the same drive and the same sort of sensibilities, maybe I would do fine now too. Maybe the music would sound infinitely different. How it would be played out might be different. I don't know. Um I can't deny that me coming along at the time when Eminem came along played into my success. No question. Mm -hmm. But who's to say that something else like that wouldn't happen now? You would be coming in with Macklemore. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there's no talent. I don't know. Like I I have to believe that the man who delights his his heart in the Lord, he he guides his steps. So that's all I can say. I, I think me coming in, I mean, again, the goal was never just to have a record deal. The goal was actually just to really reach people. Um, and I felt like God guided me along that way. So I would hope that same thing would translate now. Do you think you're, like, content-wise, what do you think about your music? Because I know, like, the earlier music, like you said, was sort of appealing to where you were trying to go. Do you think that music would fly as much now? The content? Right, like a song, let's just say like a song like 5-2. Like it's pronounced 5-2, which is oh, like no. a fun song. Would fun translate now? Right. Would, would some yeah, of but, the, but, but, or, but, or like the Coke fried cheeseburger But thing. see, again, those things happened after me coming out and trying to do really legitimate rap to the time of the time. But do you think that really legitimate rap that you, that you came in with, do you think that would have worked out for you now? Instead of having you like to change your style a little bit, uh, I it, it I think okay, the best way I could describe it was when I first came out, I was only showing you thirty percent of who I was, right? Because the other seventy percent, either I was too insecure to show, or I was playing by the rap rules that you weren't yeah, supposed to show, or maybe yeah. there was just a bit of like I was hinting at it and I did not know how to do it. You know what I'm saying? That maybe circumstances 
held it back or just the fact that you're young and you're just trying to figure it out as you're going along. Right. I think what happened, say, three years later, four years later, is I had, I had made a, a conscious choice to go, hell or high water, good, bad, or ugly, I'm going to give you 100% of me. And I knew that I knew that that would turn a certain percentage off, especially fans right. that have been rocking already. But I was like, you know what? I knew that there was way more people that it would bring in. So that was just more about having an honest evaluation of the market, an honest evaluation of those that were connecting with me. And that's probably something that most artists just never do. They're never honest about themselves. You know what I mean? Where they kind of create like this character and that becomes their brand. And they can't can't deviate. And and then as soon as they start to, that's when they see the problems. Now, again, it was like a switching of the guard, but I exchanged one thing for something else that was a bigger thing. Because again, I knew that the Christian rap world was just, it was so tiny and not self-sufficient that again, and also being, I was also being um, honest about myself. I knew as a white male, there was, it, there was just certain rules placed on me that you could call them white privilege or not privilege. It depends how you look at it. You could say it's a black privilege and not a white privilege. Right. I just knew that I had to play by those rules to an extent. And I could use those rules to my advantage or disadvantage. It was all in what I did with it. Now, look at a guy like, apparently the guy that you you always bite now, NF. Right. <laughs> <laughs> He's got like this brand, this serious, mysterious, throw the all the eeriuses at the end of it. Right. And that's what he is. And he'll never make a funny song or he'll never make yeah, something like that. How do you like know that? that? You don't oh, know oh, that. But I'm saying the way his brand is now. Right. Would not he might be the funniest guy you ever you ever met but when you listen to his music you're like has this guy ever smiled before right right but so you kind of just threw that out the window and you said i'm gonna be serious i'm also gonna be funny i'm gonna hit you in the feels with something right i'm gonna do a little bit of this and i think the the album i mentioned before the the um the story of jonah you that is a very up and down album as far as like hitting on the full spectrum of where you're at but see, I would also counter that and say, I think I always did that. I just maybe didn't do it to the same nth degree. You know what I'm saying? Because even if you look at 7th app, which again, people go, you were real back then. It's like, you know, there's a DC Talk remake on that album. There is a Popcorn, Beans, and Rice, which is a stupid spoofy song. There is skits. There is lyrical stuff. There's your Carmen song. There's the Carmen rap rock song. Like, I can't, I mean, maybe the blueprint was still there. Maybe it wasn't right. as developed, but I can't, you know, again, it's all about perception. If this song hits you at a certain point of your life or this album hits you, you're going to be blinders to whatever you want to see it to it. That's all it comes down to. And, and I, as an artist, can never convince you otherwise. Now, did I maybe look at it and go, oh, out of 15 songs, this one group that is going to pay my bills are gravitating to these three type of songs, did I now go, it makes more sense for me to put my eggs in that basket? Absolutely. Yeah. But I can tell you, I never exchanged completely one thing for another. Because people go, like even now I'll see people go, um, yo man, I hated your music for seven years because you never did music like this. I'm like, yeah, I did. You just weren't paying attention. I can go back to any album and, and pick out the same type of song. If people just think all of a sudden I became lyrical now, it's like, no, I've always done lyrical stuff 
you just stop paying attention because of this thing. And that's just the nature of music. You right. will eventually that, drop off. And that's also kind of the, the singles syndrome where Absolutely. most of the time the singles aren't representative of the artist at all. But that's gonna Absolutely. be what's gonna that's gonna be the hook that grabs people. Absolutely. And most of the time they're not as good as the album cuts. But see, I think that's all relative. That is relative. It's all relative. I, I in my opinion, the way I look at music now, there is no good music, there's no bad music. There's just effective music and non effective music. And good and bad is completely relative. So that's, that's just the way I look at it. And if something is effective and you say it's bad, I actually go, why is it effective? It's not bad. Bad is all relative. It's like food. You may hate hummus. I love hummus. Is there good and bad hummus? Absolutely. But hummus is a very specific taste. You go, oh, hummus sucks. Well, it sucks to you because it's not your palate. It doesn't mean it's poorly done. Now, there could be badly done hummus. It's ineffective. KJ, your hummus seven years ago sucked. Exactly. You're making great hummus now. What, what changed? <laughs> your taste buds changed. That is, you know what? That is so accurate. That's very accurate. I did tell you that I, I, I do enjoy food. So that analogy or that metaphor came Music came is quickly. 100% food. There's no question. Music is food. I'm in the and right the thing, business. Yeah, music is absolutely food because the analogies of food, you can eat very refined gourmet food. And other people go, I just want a burger. Right. You can be into very avant-garde, refined, lyrical music. And other people go, I just want stupid pop songs. So you're a MF Doom or you're a flow rider. Absolutely. And you know what? Some people are both. And those people, we don't, we don't talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, how, how could you like this guy and this guy? Well, uh, I love Wu-Tang, but I also love Iggy Azalea. And you're just like, um, all right. People like what they like. All right. So for you, what do you feel is your biggest success as an artist? And if you can pinpoint one moment where you felt like, like this was your most rock star moment as an artist. I don't, I don't think I can ever do that because that, that puts too much emphasis on the moment. And right. if I ever stayed stuck in a moment, I wouldn't be here right now. My success is every day effectively doing what I do in a professional manner, in a godly manner, in a way that reaches people. Like, that's my success. Now, is there little moments that certainly are, are like road, they're like road signs on along the trip? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, like maybe my first Dove Award obviously was, was a sense of like accomplishment because the amount of sacrifice it took to get it. To what did you get the Dove Award for? What song? Uh, I think it was pronounced five two. The song. The album. The album. Yeah. Yeah. How many do you have? Uh, I have six. Ah. Yeah, no one ever gets that number right. That's well, now we know. Did you accept all of them? Were you there to accept all of them? I was there to accept all of them, yep. You didn't do the cool rapper thing and just not show up? No. <laughs> I did, however. We have a via satellite. We have can a pre recorded message. The last one I won. Can I tell you the last one I won? Yeah. I was cleaning out my merch locker in Nashville, Tennessee. I was because I I was done using it and it had been someone else using it. And I had just literally unloaded an entire storage unit of merch, thrown it into a into a uh, a, a rental van, changed my clothes, driving to the Doves. It, I was covered in sweat, disgusting. Pulled up just at the moment as they announced it, ran on and grabbed it. And I thought, this is the most unglamorous thing I've ever done. Like, if people knew that I was literally sweating to death in 80-degree weather, (laughs) 
and change my pants in my car, they would have a whole other perspective. How was your speech? I was like, ah, uh, thanks, everybody. You, you went, okay. Uh, <laughs> and the thing was, the sweat. I'll tell wow, you. He must be really nervous up there. Do you know who was actually in the audience? This is what made it funny. Was Thizzle and, uh, and, and his manager. And they were, they were like the loud, obnoxious parents at the, like, at the prom. Yeah. Or at, at like your high school graduation. Yeah. Like, no, it wasn't like any like huge vivacious cheer because the Dove Awards never broadcast. The hip hop. They never broadcast hip hop. So like, it was in a side room. It wasn't even in the regular room. So it was like it was pretty quiet, and they're like they're like, "Yeah, my boy, yeah." I was like, "I'm so embarrassed, guys. So please don't do that." What what you win it for? What was that? One? I don't even remember. It was probably whatever last my last hurrah as the CCM. What's What's funny? I don't even honestly. I really don't remember. What's funny is I I interviewed uh Stephen Wiley. So you want to talk about the uh you want to talk about you want to talk about the gatekeeper of Christian hip hop, Stephen Wiley, and he told me a story. Uh, going to the Dove Awards in 1989, 1990, they didn't even have, they didn't even have. No, they didn't have the category. Yeah, they Um, really got shafted. So they were, they were just merged in with gospel. Right. And he was telling me, he was like him and, and uh, Toby Mac and, and when Toby Mac was a rapper. Right. Also not KJ52. Right. um, And, and PID and, and all these guys just together and they would sit and they would talk about you know, the future of Christian hip hop right. and where they think it was going. I could just imagine this at this Waffle House that's in Nashville that I went to. Yeah. That's next to uh, the La Quinta. So, uh, but, uh, so you've come a long way. You've definitely um, come a long way. Yeah. But you know what? I actually remember, I went to the Doves in 1996 on a fake, on a fake press pass <laughs> and sat in the press room when a group won for the rap category. That wasn't even a rap group. They were called Church of Rhythm. And I was so livid, and I, they, you know, they think I'm like part of the press. And I was like, "Hey, why do you feel like you deserve to win this when there's other <laughs> rap groups?" And the guy's answer was like, "I don't know. Like, you know, our next rap album won't really be this rap much rap. Well, like, you're not even rap to begin with. Like, yeah. that's when they used to combine it with dance and like groups that had nothing to do with rap would like keep winning it. So I sat in the audience as a frustrated person. And, and Wiley told me that too. I think when they finally did add hip hop, the first group that won the hip hop. Dove Award was like the whinings. Right. It was like the offshoot. Right. So basically they just said, um, well, urban or gospel. Right. That's, that's hip hop. Well, can I tell you like the first year I won was the first year they finally got rid of the dance category. Yeah, because who's making dance music they, anyway? Yeah, and like O2, no one had been doing that anymore. And it was a guy at Goatee Records um, finally got it eliminated from the category. But I'm not the first one to ever win a, like a rapper that ever won a double. Right, it's like right. Ritz had won before me. But I started to get this weird backlash to like, oh, they're just giving it to the, to the white guy now. Like I, I got articles written about me. I got podcasts done about me. Like you, uh, like I, I became, was writing back then. It, I might have been one of those guys. Dude, I, I became <laughs> the whipping boy for all things that were wrong with Christian rap. You know what I mean? Like you don't deserve to win that. Because Cross Movement should have won it. You didn't deserve to win that because Lecrae should have won it. Like, it was like Macklemore when he won over right. Kendrick. Right. But it's not your fault. It's not like, it's not like you, uh, you voted for yourself. No. And it's not like you campaigned either. People did not even understand. Um, people did not even understand how the whole process went. Like, but it is what it is. Voting's all what label beast, right? Labels have their votes in the block voting. 
back right. then. That's just like the, you know, the Oscars and the actual Grammys. And you're like, why do these people keep winning and they suck? <laughs> no, they just have a lot of things going for them behind the scenes. But see, for me, the thing was, it was more about, um, my wife had made so many sacrifices. We had made so many sacrifices to finally just be acknowledged and to have her there next to me when it happened. That was the, that was the validation. That's all I wanted. You know what I mean? Because we had gone through so much. I mean, like, we lived out of a van for four months. We ate potluck. You know, like, we got our apartment evicted. Like, we got my car repossessed. Like, we went in debt, $10,000. Like, every step of the way, we went through this to get to that point. And I will tell you, like, one of my times I did win, I thanked every Christian rap rapper that went before me. My speech was thanking the PIDs and the Stephen Wileys, and the ETWs, and I dedicated it to them tonight. And I said, y'all should have, these are the ones that really deserve this. And like three people clapped. Because nobody even understood the reference, but it is what it is. Who's Stephen Wiley? Exactly. <laughs> um, Stephen Wiley was very cool to speak to, yeah, actually. Yeah, I'm sure he was. Um, all right, so that's your success. So what do you think is your biggest failure and or regret that you would have for your career? And I feel like you're not someone who really has regrets. I don't have many regrets. So, yeah, but so, I think the only one I might really have is like I didn't do a. I said this is kind of a stupid thing to say, but not doing an email list, you know, <laughs> just it was just a dumb thing I didn't like pay attention to. Um, I don't have any other regrets besides was, has that. Has there been any big like failure or flop that you? That I mean, yeah, but I career? I don't look at those things as you're um, more of like a learn. It's a learning experience. Yeah, I mean, like every on. every stumbling block can be a stepping stone. Like, I don't think I've ever really, I've been very careful to do what I do, and um, that's kind of where I've been at, you know what I mean? I don't think I've ever really, I don't, I feel like the guy jumping out of the window, I have no regrets! <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. I, I Honestly, I really don't. I don't, um... I don't think I've treated people badly. I feel good about like my relationships in the industry. Um, I feel good about my, I mean, there's artistic regrets. Absolutely. Like, yeah. is there songs that I look back and went like, I, I broke my own rules. Like the rules I said I never do. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that, you know, but hindsight's twenty twenty, man. Like, you know, I don't, I don't really have any regrets. All right. Well, since you said that, What's the worst song, in your opinion, that you ever wrote? <laughs> um, worst song, like actual song. Maybe not like like not like one of those skits, well, or something like actual song. I think okay. There's a song called, and I know a lot of people love this song, but a song called "I'm Guilty" off of Pronounce Five Two. Is that the one? It's like the the judge and the reason why I regret that is because the music of it. Is literally ripped from Nas's um, of a, of a Nas song. That yeah. I, now I, hear, I didn't. Now that you're telling me that, now I I, but see, I hear it. Now is that necessarily my fault or the producer's fault? It's kind of Todd's fault, to be honest with you. <laughs> but it's my fault for permitting it. You see what I'm saying? Like right. I could have been more hands on and said, "Dude, this is just a bite." Like I come from the area, you don't bite. Now, did I want the emotion of the Nas song? I wanted to build emotion and break down emotion. There's a way to do that without it being like verbatim. 
You see what I'm saying? You can it's it's that fine line between like inspiration and just duplication. You know what I'm saying? And in my opinion, we did duplication. Now, did the average person that listened to it ever no. catch that? No. But me as a hip hop artist that lives by a code, right? I broke my code. So for you, that's your worst song. I can't say it's my worst song. I'm just saying I can definitely tell you it's something that I. That's a regret. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, there's no, like, listen, almost, I'll tell you, almost all of us go, I want to do a song like this. But the smart ones of us know how to do it in a way that we draw inspiration from it. We don't right. just copy it. Did you perform that song live? Uh, never. Because of that reason? No, nah, it just well, wasn't. It really, wasn't really a live song to do. It wasn't a live song. song to do. You know, it's that's a crowd, the other crowd thing. Killer. Listen, I was rapping for white kids with zero rhythm and just very little knowledge of the industry. So, like, I had to skew my live show to compensate for their lack of abilities. All right. So, just you screaming, "God forgive me, I'm guilty." was probably not the best route. It's to go. honestly it was more of a tempo thing. Certain tempos would just kill the white kid crowds. Right. They could not rock to it. It's, <laughs> that's a that's a thing now, the white the white kid crowds. Well it's honestly, I mean if that's who you're playing for ninety percent of your shows, right. like you have to be cognizant that you have to rock that crowd. So there would be artistic things that I would have to do or even musical things that I would do just for the sake of knowing that who the audience would be. Now that's all changed now. But again you know, now I would have people come up to go, dude, I gave my life to Christ because of that song. You know, people would be go, that song got me when I needed to hear it, you know. Um, say, yeah, and again, same thing with like Coke Fried Cheeseburger or Mountain Dew or any of those like. The mullet song. The mullet song, actually, I, I, I don't regret that song because I think that, that was a song where I literally made it as bad as possible. Well, that was on purpose. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, like. That I, the guy who played the guitar for it, he was tuning his guitar while I did it. And he goes, oh, okay, I'm done tuning. I'm like, no, we're done. We're not, you're not going <laughs> to tune your guitar. He's like, what? Like, no, that's the take. It has to sound bad. Like, you know, um, so I don't mind with that. But like, you know, I'll, a lot of them has to do with production. Like I look back and go, oh, it's Sonics of this is just too thin or it's like we could have done better on it. Or, But the way I fix that now is I just update it. I'll do it over a beat that I like better. You know what I mean? That I think is better. But the worst song. I, I'll be honest with you, Soul Purpose. I phoned in the lyrics on that record. Like I had so much going on. Me as a as a person that tries to write things. Yeah. And that was like in the middle of like two other projects, right? Yeah. I had so many things going on. I was phoning in the lyrics, which to me breaks my code. Like my code is you you put thought and, and creativity into your content. I know songs on all my records where I phoned it in. Where I was just trying to get the song done, you know, instead of taking the time to really, you know, a lot of sole purposes like choruses, really. Yeah, and that was the it's idea. And you know, Todd was like, just focus on the choruses, and but but that was the time where I was enjoying so much success that Brandon was just handing out record deals like candy. So I'm like, all right, sure, I'll take it because it was a totally separate record deal, right? So I know it, it's more my own my, my own nature. Like I put so much pressure on myself that if I don't give a hundred percent, I know when I haven't given a hundred percent. And sole purpose, I didn't give a hundred percent because I couldn't. I was touring. I was doing two side projects at the same time. I was working on the next project. You the know, next project. Me was, and Todd were was not the rock connect- project, wasn't it? 
I think actually it was the other way around. I think peace of mind was first and then sole purpose. You know, but again, you, you have to have these moments where you drop the ball to make you go, next time around, I better do better. You know what I mean? But again, there was so little Christian rap out. That was another reason. I was like, I just have to do, I need to put more music in the marketplace. You could have won a Dove Award for sole purpose, the way things were going. We were nominated for you one. Were. Yes. You were. I'm like, I cannot win this. Please don't. Like, that's the only record where we actually stopped the production of CDs on it. So the copy I have is is rare, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I we might stopped have a, it. I might have a Christian bookstore one. That we, has the, dude, we stopped it. I think at fifteen thousand copies, we effectively killed the record because that's pre downloads. I mean, I'm sure you could download it, but I'm just saying should've nobody would download. Should have brought a few to sign. <laughs> worth money. Look, I was embarrassed of that record. I was embarrassed of the artwork. I was embarrassed. I mean, Todd loves it. And can I just tell you, my biggest radio, my biggest yeah, placement, in Australia, right? Is on a vitamin ad from that stupid album. Like I made more money off one song on that record than I probably made off any song. Do you still get some residuals for it? No, because no? no. it's a one-time thing. Yeah. But I'm just saying. The point is, is, like, and then some random guy in Oklahoma like picks me up for a show and like he goes, "I just want you to know, I got a major car accident. I was gonna die, and that song got me through my therapy." I'm like, "What am I gonna say? Who do I? You know, what do you say to that? You never know. Yeah, that. But that record sucks. Like who?" I phoned that in, but I'm glad. But I'm glad it touched, you know. I mean, like, dude, you can't, you can't um, corral that stuff. All right, so what about on the other side? What do you think is your most perfect, flawless song? I See, I couldn't say that either. Like, I, I, I know, huh? Too many good babies in your head? <laughs> it's not that. I would just have to say, is there songs that lyrically I feel like, yeah, I wrote it exactly how I wanted to? Absolutely. I could name a ton. But I would have to also look back and go, Dear Slim and Dear Slim 2 are very pivotal. Because of the importance of your career. Like, I can't, I can't negate how those songs changed my situation. And you know, that's another thing, that if you came out in 2010, you never get a Dear Slim. Right. But then again, maybe I would have you, Dear Magalore. Who knows? You know what I mean? You'd be writing to Encore Eminem, <laughs> who wasn't on drugs. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I, but you know what? Look, and I, it sounds weird to talk about myself like in the third person, but if there's anything I could say I did right is the fact that I never, I was never scared to do what other people were scared to do. Nobody was writing songs to people, to Eminem in that sense. No one was writing a song to a secular rapper and effectively like putting it all out there. Because we were, they were all too scared or didn't have enough wherewithal to think of that. Now it could be very commonplace to do that. I'm not saying I was the first one by any means, by no means. I'm just saying, if there's anything I've done right, is that I've always been willing to go not just 100%, 150%. And just give it where, a shot. Where most of my peers will probably go 70%. That's why you're still here. Uh, yeah live I, look and that, I'll be honest with you I never considered myself the most talented I never considered myself the most having all the raw things but I always knew hard work will out uh, what's the what's the phrase hard work outworks talent when talent won't work hard it's a tongue twist there hard work hard work beats talent when talent won't work hard or something like that it's just the point is that I knew my hard work ethic could make up for what I lacked. My willingness to think outside of the box, where most of my guys were very easy, 
I just never played it safe. Right. You know? So, so with that being said, as someone who almost won a Dove Award for sole purpose, but has a hit, <laughs> had a hit in Australia, has uh, had their music heard by Eminem, has been yeah. slammed on VH1, has uh, body slam, has seen and done it all. Like, what is left? What do you feel is left for you to do in your career? What's like something else you want to accomplish? I never had like that's not the way I ever really looked at it. I didn't look. I got to do this, this, and this. I never had a bucket list. It was just if you keep doing what you do every day and you do it well and you do it consistently, those things that people look as bucket lists will just happen. So I don't really have anything that I want to accomplish per se. The best thing I can accomplish is what I what is right in front of me right now. You know what I mean? Be a good dad. Be a good husband. Be a good steward of my finances. Be a good, you know, have artistic integrity. Be a good minister. If I just keep doing those things, the other stuff just by sheer nature will happen. Since you do have an album that recently came out, can you, you know, maybe talk a little bit about Jonah Part 2? And you're currently on tour for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm always on tour. You're always touring. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I haven't done like a traditional tour in years, but... I mean, I've always played out. That's just honestly. When I left youth pastoring, a bunch of inner city hood kids, I left it because I wanted to be on the road, sharing the gospel through hip hop. Like that's was always the desire. Whether the records happen or not, that was like second secondary. But um, yeah, man. Like basically, uh, you know, the guy came to me about doing the documentary, and I thought that's kind of an odd thing. Like, how much of my you know, it's a very specific fan base would only want to fund that or see that. Um, so I was like, if I just do a documentary, I'm only going to have this level of success. People always want new music. So I thought, what if we combine this as two things? We do a deluxe version or bonus songs. Then I realized like doing a deluxe version in 2018 makes no sense. Like, right. That's stupid. You're just, again, I just listen to the fans. I ask the fans questions. I listen to what they say. I, I gauge their temperature. I, I, I try to serve them the best I can. And they're like, we want a new project. So then I was like, okay. Well, then it's easier for me to do a, what I feel is like the continuation of what the project was because eight songs is dumb small, you know, like, yeah. um, so that's basically what just happened and it was pretty effortless. Like it wasn't, music does not feel like work anymore. It feels like what it was when I was a kid. Like it's just your expression now. I just do it better and smarter because I have more experience. But that's really what it came down to, like super effortless and like now I don't have to try and hit the the whole nation. I'm just trying to satisfy my tribe. You know? Right. That's it. Like music stopped being fun when you had a thousand people in your in your pocket. You know what I mean? That's when you're like you're making concessions and you're doing things for these people. And you're like Now you're just doing it for yourself. Well, I'm doing it for the people that appreciate it, which I guess is myself, but um, I don't have to do all the concessions I used to do. Like, I can just rap for the sake of rapping, like, and people get it, you know? Like, that's where I started. So you've come full circle. Absolutely. And your final thought, so what would be your major key 
for the survival. <laughs> Word to Khaled, I guess, right? <laughs> for the survival of the artist in 2018. I mean, I don't think the basics of anything has ever changed. I think if you, my personal philosophy has always been listen to God and listen to people. If you do those two things, you will never not succeed. If you listen to what the people are telling you to do in the sense of like what they want style-wise and aesthetically and stuff like that, and if you listen to what God is showing you and speaking into you and constantly birthing in you, and you combine those two things, you'll always hit the mark. You know, how it plays out specifically is a big thing, but you'll always hit the mark. That's the only thing that's kept me going. You know what I mean? Like those two things. Listen to God, listen to people, and, and you'll be okay. And how much longer are you going to keep going? You know, it's funny, like, um, the best way I can compare this to, because I used to run track, is when you're running a track race, you reach a point in that run, there's two things that happen. You either reach a point before you finish the line, where you're like, dude, I just want to finish the line. I just want to cross the finish line and collapse. The other way you can run is you cross the finish line and you go, Dang, I could like run some more. Yeah. There was a point in my life where I was just trying to cross the finish line. That was like, oh, if I'm still at 35 and I'm doing it, I cross the finish line, I'm good. Oh, if I'm still at 30, I'll da da da. What's happened now is I've crossed the finish line and I got plenty of gas left. So when someone goes, well, when are you going to stop? I'm like, I don't know. I was supposed to stop back then. (laughs) (laughs) You know, now I'm just like, I'm in bonus level or whatever you want to call it. You know what I mean? The deluxe part of the album. It's almost like I finished the race and then I found a whole nother trail off to the side. And now it's brand new territory. And I'm just running for the sheer enjoyment of what running feels like. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So maybe there's an end to that trail somewhere. But I came up in an era where they told you you had to pick. You can either do this or you can do the music. You got to pick the two. You cannot do both. What has actually happened now is is the whole new world, the whole generation underneath me goes that you never need to pick because they don't know any different. You know what I mean? Yeah. The only people that ever criticize my appearance or my status level or where I'm at in the industry are guys a little bit younger than me. You see what I'm saying? And in 20 years, they probably wish that they even made it five years sometimes i wonder if they're projecting their insecurities onto me right because it's like the people that you think should be criticizing you never do they're just like yeah man works for me it's like those that like are a little frustrated and a little bit younger maybe five ten years younger they're the ones that have the most criticism and i realize like they have no bearing on me like so at this point i'm like it is what it is I feel like do do your kids still think you're cool? Yeah, like when like if 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 someone asks your kids like, "Oh, what does your dad do?" They're like, "He's no a rapper." No embarrassment. So so then you're good. They once not, once they hit an age where they're like, "Oh, my dad's a rapper." Right. He's like 55. Right. Like then you have to stop. Probably. I don't even know if it's an age thing. I think <laughs> it would be more like, can they bring their friends to me and not be embarrassed of me? Right. Because you could be 55 and. You'd be Dr. Dre. And be totally cool <laughs> to that kid. It really comes down. It's so individualistic. Right. So like, absolutely. 
my kids think what I do is super cool, but I don't think it's because it's nature of being a rapper. It's just that maybe it's a sincerity of what I do or that there's no errors or if anything, I'm the one that always downplays it. Right. You know? So I don't know. I, I, I know a lot of guys my age with kids that their kids are not embarrassed of their parents. But it probably has to do with the way their parents disseminate their relationships with them. Right. You know what I mean, they're actively involved in their lives and like, you know. It actually it's funny you say this. I just had this conversation with a guy. I've known him for a long time. He used to rap quite a bit. Now he's a pastor. He's struggling with what he wants to do musically. His son raps. Son is of the new generation style-wise. Mm-hmm. And his dad will get on his case about the new style. And I'm like, you have to stop doing that. You cannot look with 2020 vision back on our past and go, it was better when we did it. The same problems were there. You know what I mean? They probably both think each other are whack. I mean, <laughs> part <laughs> of it's just, yeah. But it's also the, a relation, the dynamic, the relationship of a father and son. Absolutely. And, and be honest, have I ever done that too? Of course. Look, I went into my son's Instagram. I saw some of the people he was following. I'm like, you're not following him. He sucks. He can't rap. I started unfollowing all these people. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I was wrong. I had to go back to my son and go, you know what? I'm sorry for doing that. We should discuss this together. And let me explain to you why they suck. But I realized like, he viewed the choice of the like league. that was my natural inclination, but I pulled it back really fast and I apologize. You know, fathers do not expect, exasperate your children. Yeah, do I just let them run willy nilly with whatever he wants to do? Of course not. But you get way farther in discussing and talking than putting the hammer down. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah, man. Great art. KJ52, put the hammer down. Hammer down. This hammer was time. Survival of the Artist podcast episode four. Live, not dead, in a hotel yes. in Newark. We're, we're alive. With, with King J. Mack himself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for listening, everyone. KJ, thanks, man. Thank you, sir. Good to finally do this in person. Yeah, man. Peace.